Bible says, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. You know what that simply means? You cannot even imagine what that day is going to be like. And when we think about our loved ones being in heaven and our Lord being there, seated at the right hand of, seated at the, right hand of the Father, we can't even imagine what that's like in there. But it doesn't hurt to think about it, does it? And to think about what it's going to be like if we were to hear the shout and the trumpet even now and to be caught up to be with the Lord forever. That is something that is exciting to think about. And I hope and my prayer is that you're ready to go at a moment's notice. You know, they used to call the, in the Revolutionary War, those fighters that were to be ready at a moment's notice, they called them Minutemen. Well, we're the Minutemen of this earth, aren't we? At any moment, the Lord could return. So if you've never been saved, my prayer is that today you would come under conviction of your sin and know that your sin is going to condemn you to an eternity in hell separated from the glorious and merciful and wonderful presence of God. And that you will understand that Jesus went to the cross as, the, as pure perfection. The life you could never live. And the innocent one suffered in your place, the guilty. And he took all of the wrath of God that you deserve and paid the price for your sin. And he died and then rose again three days later and is ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And the Bible says if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So confess him as Lord today. That's our number one prayer. Our number two prayer is, what about suffering believers today? You had a good week or a frustrating week? Are you going through something right now? Deborah Meggett is waiting for her mother to slip into eternity right now. They would appreciate your prayers. You think about people that are sick. You think about people that are suffering through things. You think about people that have family problems. You think about people that uh, their marriage is on the brink. You think about people who are economically suffering in these times of inflation and maybe their job is just tenuous at best. You think about all of these things that are going on, not to mention, oh, what a moral crisis that our culture is in right now. And you think about all of the things that are going on, and there's only one solution, folks. Only one solution, and that is Jesus Christ. And the church is supposed to be the conscience of our nation. We've got to be bold. We've got to speak up in love. But we've got to speak up and we've got to live the life that we're supposed to live. Whether we're in a trial or not, that's not really the issue. The issue is, are we glorifying God no matter what? And like we saw in Daniel today, even though he had been in obscurity for 20 years, when we pick it up again and he comes back on the scene, what is he doing? The same thing he was before, just being a faithful man of God. So I'd like for us to pray <clears throat> and I'd like for you to know that you're being prayed for. And if you uh, need somebody to pray for you, just ask that person beside you, would you do me a favor and would you pray for me today? Uh, you say, well, I would feel bad about that. Don't be, don't be prideful about it. Be humble. 
And it it's, uh, takes a lot of humility to ask somebody to pray for you. So uh, ask somebody. If you need to come to the altar, you can come and you can kneel and be there with the Lord. And somebody will come up and they'll just stand there with you. You don't have to say a word. You don't have to bear your soul. You don't even have to tell them why you're praying. They just want you to know you're not alone. And we're a family. We're a body. And that they love you and they care for you. And if you know someone who is here who's going through a trial, just go to them and gather around them. And just ask, may I pray for you? And uh, if they're already praying, then you just pray silently with a hand on their shoulder or something like that. This is a time for us to show our love and our faith in the Lord. That's why we pray. But it's also a time to be together in prayer because we love one another and we're bearing one another's burdens. Okay? So, you know where you're supposed to go? Maybe you want to send a text to somebody and let them know you're praying for them. That's perfectly fine. Use that technology for God's glory. Lord knows it gets used enough to blaspheme him. Maybe we could do something to glorify him today with that. So let's go to prayer and I'll give you some time to pray. And then I'll lead us in a word of prayer in just a moment. Okay. Pray for Lisa Anderson's family and her passing and for comfort for them. We're going to have a service tonight as a part of our outreach to minister to her family and to share the gospel with them. So please be here tonight. Please be here tonight. Be a good testimony for the church. Okay. And don't forget to thank him. You probably have something to be thankful for this morning. Don't forget to rejoice in Him. Even if everything is as rotten as it's ever been, you're still commanded to rejoice in the Lord. Do that, okay? Oh, Father, we come as individuals, and yet we come together as one, a body of believers, a local church, the bride of Christ, your flock, your sheep, the subjects in your kingdom, and we come to give you glory and honor and praise because you are Lord and you do all things well. You do things that are beyond our understanding, beyond our com comprehension. You do things that cause us to sometimes hurt and grieve, and yet you do all things well. And we stand upon that because you are in control and we thank you that you are working all things together for our good because we're the called according to your purpose, being conformed to the image of Christ. And Lord, we want to thank you that even in those times when we are frustrated, when we are hurting, in those times when we are lonely, in those times when we feel like just abject failures, when it seems as though everything is turned against us and everything is going the wrong way, we thank you, Father, that doesn't change Romans 8, 28, 1 iota. It doesn't change you. You're not having to alter your plans. You're not having to come up with something else. You're not scrambling because of something the devil has done. You already knew what he was going to do before he even has done it. And you already know what your reaction is going to be. You have a perfectly strategized all the way to the very end. And we look forward to that. <clears throat> We thank you, Father, that even in our lives, that when you are working in us, we may pray for you to draw us closer to you, and then you do it through something that is difficult, 
And so, Lord, our prayers are answered even in our trials as we think about how you guide us through them. So we pray you would help us. We pray you would strengthen us. And then, Father, we have so much to rejoice in, so much to give you praise for. And I thank you, Father, that um, when we look at Mission 405 and some of the frustrations of not having a place where we can do that, at the same time, we can rejoice that Lisa Anderson is part of the fruit of that ministry and that she's in heaven and we're going to get to minister to her family and share the gospel with them tonight. And that, Lord, that makes it all worth it. So we praise you for that. And we thank you, Lord, for our Sunday school this morning. And we thank you for every teacher who prayed for their classes, who uh, contacted absentees, who studied their lesson, who presented it faithfully this morning. Bless them and bless our classes. We give you praise that we have teachers in our church who are competent, who are intelligent, who love you and who walk with you. We give you praise, Father, because with all of the problems our nation has, and they are many and we confess those sins to you. We also thank you, Lord, that we gather here without fear. We gather here without any threat of intimidation to preach what the Word of God says, and we thank you for that freedom. And we thank you that this nation has been used for all of these centuries to be able to proclaim the gospel, to send out missionaries, to gather and to encourage believers, to tell the lost about Jesus. Thank you for that. And our prayer is that that would continue on and continue on. We want to pray, Father, that you would strengthen us, and we pray that you would bless us, And we pray that through all of this and through these difficult times in which we live, may we be the ones that are found faithful. And may other people find us to be credible. May other people find us to be people that they can trust. And may we, when they trust us and when they listen to us, may we give them the truth of the Word of God because we are filled with the joy of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so we pray this for ourselves, for those that we love, and we do it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to talk about something. We talk a lot about victory in Jesus, but our victory in Jesus should also bring us victory in our relationships and we're in first thessalonians chapter 2 again this morning about to finish up this particular chapter as paul expresses over and over again his love for the thessalonian believers and by the way it's a kind of love that he doesn't present it as being abnormal weird or something like that he presents it as being very very normal for children of god so as we think about that i want to remind you That Jesus told us things like this. Love your enemies and uh, we're supposed to pray for them and minister to them. He also told us, as uh, John the Apostle wrote one of his epistles, If you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. God, people, God, people, God, people. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, but we're also to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. God, and people, God, and relationships. And then we are told also that it's uh, through the love that we have for one another that others will know 
that we are children of God. And so that this idea of Christian love is not some ooshy-gooshy, romanticized type thing. It's real, it's practical, it's raw, it's gritty, it's hard, and it also is very, very, very faithful. And the love that we have is a normal and natural thing because God comes to live in us when we are saved, and God is love. And so therefore, when we think about these relationships, whether it's between a husband and wife, parents, children, fellow church members, whatever it may be, think about this. It reveals our identity to us. The love that we have for others confirms that we are children of God. We love God and we love people. Secondly, it also confirms our identity to the world. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another. And then thirdly, of course, it glorifies God whenever we love each other as we should. And so this is kind of the outgrowth of what Paul is saying here and what he is talking about. He met these people, he ministered to these people, and because they were saved and he was saved, he couldn't help but to love them and love them with the love that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we'll begin at verse 17 and just listen to how this just oozes and, and uh, just is saturated with a, a very special kind of love that he has for this church even though he only knew them about a month. He says, but we brethren... Having been taken away, that's a term that means by force, from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, we endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our, not pain in the neck, not annoyance, not frustration, not something we have to tolerate. What does he say? You are our glory and joy. And so when you think about this, we'll introduce this by asking you just to notice things that we read. He missed being with them. That is normal and natural for a believer to miss being with other believers. That's not unusual. There's something wrong with you if you don't miss being with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's normal to miss them. Notice also that his heart was leading him back into fellowship and trouble. For Paul to go back and see them, it was not going to be family reunion, hot dogs, apple pie, and all of that type of stuff. It was going to be more persecution, more problems. He had been driven out of Thessalonica, and to go back was just to stir up more of the trouble just to be with them. And you know what he was saying to them? You're worth it. You're worth the trouble. We find today that in relationships, we don't want to be troubled. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to have to give any time or effort into any of those things. We think it's a Disney movie that everything's just supposed to be, you know, the prince kissed the princess and they lived happily ever after. That didn't work even back then and it doesn't work now. 
This is something we put time and effort into. And Paul was willing to walk back into trouble in order to be with these people and to love them. We don't even want to be inconvenienced. If a church service comes at the wrong time and conflicts with a sporting event, guess who wins? Well, that says something about us, and we don't have much right to complain about what's going on in society if we're no more committed than that. Amen or oh me. Or nothing. So, think about it. And he was only stopped by the hindrance of Satan. So, for some reason, Satan was opposed to Paul's return. Don't know why. We're not told. We're not told how the hindrance took place. We're just told that was the root of the whole thing. So whenever we get hindered and we say, well, I couldn't do anything about it, maybe we ought to think about who was behind that and why he doesn't want us with the people of God, serving the people of God, doing the works of the ministry. And then the question is, why did he call them a crown? That's weird. I don't think I've ever called you a crown. I don't think you've ever called me a crown. Why did that happen? Why that particular terminology? The rest of it kind of makes sense. That was weird. Paul, that's a weird thing to say. So we'll look at that in just a minute. And why not just move on? You know, Paul, you're, you're kind of letting this thing in Thessalonica dominate you, and you're kind of talking about it and obsessing over it. You, gotta, you, know, you can't do anything about that. Just, just kind of move on. Just move on. It'll be okay. Just forget about it. Just drop it. Just kind of move on. So we're going to try to answer some of these questions because they're extremely important. Was Paul psychotic? Was Paul delusional? Was Paul obsessed with them? What, what's going on here? Or was he spirit-filled? That's really the question, isn't it? Maybe what he was doing was much more normal for the Christian life than it was abnormal. And as Vance Havner said, we've been living so subnormally as Christians for so long that when someone begins to act normal, we think it's abnormal. So let that be on your heart as we think about this. Number one... I want you to consider the fact that spiritual relationships cannot really be broken. A spiritual relationship. When you come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, He makes a covenant with you in His blood. He comes to live in you through His Holy Spirit. He makes you spiritually alive so that you can relate to Him. And then He tells us that even though we're down here now living on earth, we're also seated with Him in heavenly places in Christ. We are in the Lord. The book of Ephesians over 40 times says we are in Him, are in Christ, or in the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. How do you break that relationship? And the only way that relationship can be broken is for Jesus to topple off of the throne. For Jesus to quit being who He is as our Savior and Lord and our Redeemer because we are in Him and He is in us and that is a permanent relationship. He even told... um, told us at one point, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. He didn't say they will get eternal life when they die. They have it at the moment of salvation. If you take it away, then it wasn't eternal. Jesus is a liar. The whole thing's a sham. That relationship can't be broken. But did you know the same thing is true with all of us? 
Whenever you come to know Christ as Lord and Savior and someone else knows Christ as Lord and Savior, they are your brother or your sister in Christ. They're not just another person. They're not just somebody who showed up. They are family, your brother or sister in Christ. And you can't break that without taking the Holy Spirit out of one of you. And so when we're called to be unified, it's the Holy Spirit in me dominating my life that fellowships with the Holy Spirit in you dominating your life. And it's a beautiful picture of our relationship with Christ and our walk with Christ, even our marriages. Christian marriage matters because Paul said it's a picture of the relationship of Christ and his church. Now this is why things like adultery in a Christian marriage are so devastating. They're devastating to anybody, but especially to a Christian. Because to do that is to give the picture that either Christ or his church is going to sever the relationship, and that is just not going to happen. It also is the reason why divorce is something that is, well, the Bible says very clearly, God hates divorce. You're never going to change that, and you're never going to get God to see things your way. He hates it. And why does he hate it? Because when divorce happens among Christians, to say, I no longer want to be with you, and you no longer want to be with me, and we're going to sever this spiritual covenant that we have with one another, what is that saying? It's messing up the picture. Messing up the picture. If you went to the Louvre in Paris <clears throat> and you walked up to the Mona Lisa, maybe you've done that, and you walked up there to it and somehow you were able to get to the actual painting itself and you pull out a Sharpie and draw a mustache on her, do you think you would be well taken? I got a feeling you'd be in jail. Why? Because you messed with the picture, the masterpiece. And what happens when we let relationships crumble, when we don't work, regardless of what the other person is doing, to keep those things intact and to keep them right, you know what you're doing? You're drawing a mustache on the Mona Lisa, or worse, you are destroying and marring the picture that God wants to make in your life through other people, particularly in your marriage. No wonder our children are rejecting church and rejecting the gospel because so many of them come from broken homes. They don't see it. They don't get it. It doesn't seem to make sense. And so this is something that we must, if you've been through something like that, it's going to be something you're going to have to pray about and work to rebuild and watch your attitude because this is a problem. And by the way, if that ex-spouse of yours that you can't stand and can't live with, if they're saved... You're going to be in heaven with them forever. i got bad news for you. They're going to be there too if they're truly born again. And so all of this kind of stuff is important because this is what the Lord speaks of and the two things go together. This stuff is just devastating that is going on. But before we get too smug and self-righteous, this is why the Bible condemns gossip. Because you are marring the character of of a brother, a family member, a sister in the Lord Jesus Christ. You were damaging them in the eyes and through the ears of someone else. And this is why if you are separated from your um, 
uh, spouse and you have children, you've got to be very careful how you navigate that because your kids are commanded by God to honor their father and their scummy father. Well, it doesn't say scummy, but they still are under obligation to do that. They have to honor their father and their over-emotional, unrealistic mother that nobody could ever live with, right? And you've got to shepherd them that way. That's a command from God because you want them to honor the Lord. And that's why we've got to be careful whether it's in the context of a divorce or maybe even in just the context of church. Gossiping, putting down, tearing down, destroying one another in the church. And uh, this is why discord between believers is problematic. It mars the picture. We're supposed to be showing the world and showing our children what a peaceful relationship is like between sinful man and a perfect God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just don't do so well with all of that because we're too busy demanding our rights and putting people in our places. And if you think I'm going to let this get by, you've got another thing. All of that kind of stuff instead of taking up our cross and denying ourselves and uh, following the Lord. And so um, all of this kind of stuff reminds us of why there are so many different commands in the Bible for unity. God is putting together a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle, and we're the pieces, and we're to fit in our place and show the world and to show upcoming generations a proper picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship with Him. Very, very important. Okay, secondly, Christian love craves close fellowship. You never find it modeled in the Bible. I'm giving my life to Christ and I'm surrendering to Him and trusting Him as my Savior and Lord. Now where can I go to get away from all of His children? You never find that. My dad used to say, um, if you take a hen and put the hen in water, you're going to have, well, you've, you've heard the expression, mad as a what? Wet hen. I'm trusting him that that's true. I've never done that. But then he went on to say, but if you could somehow supernaturally change that hen into a duck, the duck will go hunt water. And he used that as an illustration to say, lost people hate church. They don't like the fellowship. They don't like the preaching. They don't like the praying. They don't like to give. They don't like to do any of that. Oh, they'll do enough to save face. But they don't really like it. They don't really enjoy it. They don't find any joy in it. Get it over with. Get it done so I can get back to <clears throat> what they call real life. But when they get saved, it's like the duck. A saved person will hunt up a church. A saved person wants to be in close fellowship. They crave close fellowship with other believers. He says, I endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Do you notice how he put that? I mean, he could have said, looking forward to see you again. Till next time. God bless you. Right? Paul. He didn't say that. And you notice how this desire that he has, it's active. He says, I endeavored. It wasn't just, well, if it works out, you know, that's what happens. 
We say to family members at a funeral, we got to quit meeting up like this. Don't we? And yet we don't because we don't endeavor. This is an active thing. I endeavored. I tried. <clears throat> Notice it was also enthusiastic. It was not just, oh, I guess I better check on the Thessalonians. It was, uh, he said he did it eagerly. He couldn't wait. Enthusiastic. Active, enthusiastic. It was also personal. I want to see your face. I want to look into your eyes. I want to be able to be there with you and see how things are going. You know the uh, old saying, eyes are the window to the soul. You can tell a lot about a person when you're able to see them face to face and you see their eyes and you see the look. That's why texting can be a blessing but it can also be dangerous too because you can't see the person you don't know the expression on their face there's no voice inflection with it and somebody on the other end believe it or not can take it wrong paul said this is more than just i'm going to send you a postcard or a letter as he was doing here or a text or something like that this is something where he said i wanted to see your face i wanted to look you in the eye when i did this i wanted to be close it was also authentic. He said that uh, I have great desire, great desire. Not just kind of the I'm saying the right thing or it's obligatory, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, somebody says to you, you know, we ought to have lunch sometime. You're, you're probably not going to say, nah. You know, that wouldn't be right. You, you go, yeah, yeah, we need to do that. And then you never give it another thought. That's not Paul. Authentic. And he was talking about this with great desire. Does that characterize your relationships? Does that characterize the way you are in your family? Does that characterize the way you are with your Sunday school class, with the church? Whatever it may be. That's what Paul modeled for us. And he didn't do that to be a show-off. He did that because that was the work of the Spirit of God in his life. And you had the same Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul does. And probably right now, the Holy Spirit is taking your memory not to your easiest, most likely situation where you could do this, but probably to the worst, probably to the hardest. We've all got those hard people in our lives. You do, and I do, and sometimes I read this, and I read it with a spiritual smile. Oh, that's so great. Lord, I want to do that. And then that person comes to my mind, and I go, uh, yeah, I'll catch you later on that one. We'll talk about that later. One of these days, I'm going to get around to it, and we're going to be okay. Okay? Well, he's doing that for a reason. That's something that has to be dealt with, at least in your own heart. You may not be able to change them. I met with somebody one time, and we were talking about somebody else, and they were the problem, and I said, well, we need to stop talking about them because they're not here. And if we need to come to the understanding we cannot change other people because if we could change other people, we wouldn't be having this meeting, would we? We'd just change them and everything would be great. We can't do that, but we can change ourselves. And we can submit ourselves. And we can be obedient even if they're not. Thirdly, notice this. Satan is behind any barrier to unity at any level. <clears throat> it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It wasn't God. He brings us together. But Satan hates togetherness. 
Satan doesn't want people coming to church, doesn't want them coming to Sunday school. Satan doesn't want families to be together. We're more scattered than ever before. And uh, he doesn't want any true unity to take place, even though Jesus told us we're to make disciples. That's a pretty intimate and tough situation because to make somebody a disciple, they not only have to be a follower of Christ, but they've got to learn of Christ. That's why he said, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Well, that means confronting sin. That means talking about hard issues. That means working together on things that are unpleasant and sometimes dirty and nasty and awful. And that's what we're called to do with one another. Boy, the devil hates that. If uh, it's true, as the psalmist said, behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. If that's true, and by the way it is, then the devil hates it. So he does everything he can to cause husbands and wives not to get along, parents and children not to get along, siblings not to get along, church members not to get along, neighbors not to get along. I mean, all of these kind of things. He's behind it at every level. Now you notice Paul said, we tried time and time again to come to you, but we were hindered by Satan. Well, didn't Paul know warfare? Well, of course he did. He's the one that taught us about it. But he attributes it to the devil and said we could not overcome this in order to get to you. Now we don't know what it was. Scheduling difficulties. Maybe there was a ship strike and they couldn't you know, get, a, get passage to uh, Thessalonica. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But Paul attributes it, of course, to the devil. And we need to understand that too. We wanted to come to you, even I, Paul. Even Paul couldn't overcome this. Even Paul. Now, I might understand, well, Timothy was attacked by the enemy and, you know, he didn't know enough to uh, overcome it, didn't have enough maturity, <clears throat> didn't have enough faith. But Paul, even I, Paul, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> time and again, but Satan hindered us. The word that he uses for hindered here is... Um, it's E-N-E-K-O-P-S-E-N. Enocopsin is the word. So why would you put it in Greek? Uh, because every time I tried to put the transliteration in there, my uh, wonderful all-knowing predictive text changed it into something it wasn't supposed to be. And so I just uh, put that one in there. Enocopsin. It's the technical word for putting up a roadblock calculated to stop an expedition, a military expedition, in other words. An expedition on the march. It is Satan's work to throw obstacles into the Christian's way and it is our work to surmount them. So in other words, the Bible is giving us a hint here that even for Paul, Satan worked hard to destroy, to disrupt and even to get him just to ignore or make relationships impossible. It tells you a little bit about his strategy. He wants you to be isolated. He wants you to have hurt feelings. He wants you to feel left out. He is, <clears throat> pardon me, behind all of that. And that's what we need to understand. So it wasn't a lack of motivation on Paul's part. He had plenty of that. It wasn't a lack of knowledge or authority he knew warfare he knew about the work of the enemy and the armor of the believer and all of that and yet even on this he couldn't 
and understand that Satan could not hinder Paul unless a sovereign God allowed it. There are just some things, some prayers that don't get answered. And you've got to go back to, yeah, it was a devil who didn't want it to happen, but it was God who allowed the devil to do that. And he said, all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. So there are just some times you just have to trust God that he did not allow it. And in this case, he allowed Satan to hinder even Paul from getting there to Thessalonica. There are no magic words, magic bullets, or tricks we can pull out to make everything go our way, folks. We just have to trust God. And in this case, the devil became an unwilling servant of the Most High God. And so we are to resist, we're to stand our ground, and we are to walk through the open doors that he gives us, and we are to remember that Satan's power is limited, and it is temporary, and that God is never defeated. He is the only one who knows everything, even what the devil is going to do. You want an illustration of that? Genesis chapter 50 verses 19 and 20 and it's Joseph. Sold in slavery by his brothers who hated him. Accused of rape that was not true by Potiphar's wife. Thrown into prison as an innocent man. And then, then and only then after all of those years as a slave and as a prisoner. Then he is promoted to be the prime minister of Egypt. His brothers come in and now they're terrified because Joseph that they thought they were getting rid of is the second most powerful man in Egypt and they need food. Remember they're terrified. Now he's going to get revenge on of all, all of us. And this is a famous verse. Genesis 50, 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, you don't know the big picture, and you're judging God. You're frustrated with God. You're holding out on God. You're boycotting God somehow, as if it's going to change the unchangeable. As if it's going to give God information that the all-knowing God didn't have. As if maybe it's going to motivate this all-powerful, all-loving God to finally do what he ought to do. Do you realize how ludicrous you are when you think things like that and act like that? No, you need to just trust him. He knows what he is doing even in the way he allows the enemy to act. Because he could wipe them all out with a word had he chosen to. But there's a purpose. There's a plan. And it's going to get us where we need to be to do what we need to do to bring greater glory to God, just like it did in the life of Joseph, or maybe you've noticed in the life of Daniel that we are talking about in Sunday school. And number four, our Christian unity and fellowship point to a victorious eternity. You'll notice down in verse 19, he said that you're our hope, our joy, and our crown of rejoicing. And then he says, he ties it together with, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, when? At his coming. Paul takes what is going on now and his relationship with them and ties it into the second coming. You know, I wonder when the Lord returns, is there a relationship that if 
you heard the trumpet right now, okay, and you had just a little bit of time. I don't think you will, but you had just a little bit of time. Let's just imagine. The trumpet sounds, you know the Lord is coming. Is there somebody that you would say at that moment, whoo, I wish I'd held out a little longer. I wish I'd tried a little harder. I wish I'd been a little kinder. See, and so Paul is saying all of this is tied to our relationship through Christ with you, our unity in Christ, and you're our hope, you're our joy, and you're our crown of rejoicing at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying when the Lord comes, I want us to be right with each other. I want us to be together. I want you to know now how much I love you and that will not change even when the Lord returns, I won't have any regrets is what he is saying. You are our glory and our joy. Now that thing, most of that makes sense to me. That's the way we feel. Grandparents, you know that when that little grandchild comes running towards you, says your name and holds up their arms. That joy, that hope that you feel, another generation, and they love me, and oh, this is just wonderful. You know that feeling. But crown? I've never looked at one of mine and said, hey, you look like a crown. Don't do that. What, what in the world does he mean? Paul, why'd you go weird on us here? It's okay to ask questions like that. Because you read it and you go, what in the world? Well, let's think about this. In the Greek, there are two words for crown. One is diadema. We get our word diadem from that. And that's the crown of coronation. Coronation. King Charles is going to be uh, have his coronation here before too much longer and they have all these official things that they do <clears throat> they put a very heavy crown on his head in fact I saw an interview with Elizabeth and she couldn't even wear the crown that they gave her at her coronation very long because it was so heavy she felt it would snap her neck and so she changed it out as soon as she could to another crown that's the diadem, the crown of the sovereign, the crown of the one who rules, who has power, who has authority, and all of that. The diadem, bring forth the royal, what? Diadem, that's what that is. That's for the Lord, okay? But the one that Paul uses here, when he says, you're our crown, he uses the word stephanos, stephanos. And again, <clears throat> I tried to transliterate it, and it kept putting Stephanie and all of that kind of stuff, and I got tired of it. Stephanos, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-O-S, Stephanos, Stephanos. And uh, the definition of that is properly a wreath. Okay, you are our wreath. I don't know, I didn't have much punch to it. I like crown better maybe. Until you realize that it was back, you see the picture making an allusion to the Olympic Games. When you won the race, that's the crown that they put on your head. That that you see on the screen is the Stephanos. And it is the crown of victory. And it sounds strange to me that Paul would say, you're our crown, until you think of it like this. What happened... When Jesus died on the cross, bore the wrath of God, said, It is finished, meaning the debt was paid, rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. What happened in our life? We came by grace 
alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, children of God. Sinners like us were brought into a right relationship with a holy God. In fact, Christ took our sin on the cross and gave us His righteousness. That's amazing. That's impossible, except with God. For with God, all things are possible. That's what happened. You know what we used to call somebody getting saved? I was thinking back. Oh, last time I heard anybody say anything like this, and if you did forgive me, I'm old and I've forgotten. But the last time I remember hearing this was Ray Teagle, the minister of music at Memorial Heights Baptist Church in Claremore, Oklahoma, was at an associational uh, pastor's meeting. And we were telling the story about somebody that got saved in our church, there at First Baptist Church of Chelsea. And he said, wow, what a victory. Do you remember when we used to talk like that? We had a victory today. Somebody walked the aisle and trusted Christ. We had a victory today. Somebody was baptized to show their faith in Jesus Christ. We used to call it a victory. Paul would not argue with that because Paul is saying, our relationship with you, you were heathen, idol worshipers, infidels, far from the kingdom of God, spiritually dead, locked in immorality, and then you heard the gospel and you received it not as the word of men, but as it truly is the word of God. And all of a sudden, these people who couldn't be any further apart, Paul raised as an Orthodox Jew and a Pharisee, and these idol-worshiping Gentiles come together as one in Christ. And Paul said, that is the victor's crown. Paul said, when you got saved, we were crowned. And one day they're going to receive that crown and Paul's going to receive that crown because it's talking about victory. And how victorious is it when a husband and wife come together after being separated? How victorious is it after a sinning believer is disciplined by the church and then they come back into fellowship in the church? How victorious is it when something could have torn us apart and yet instead of it happening, one person yielded their rights, laid them down, and both people are able to walk together in unity. And God says, here's another crown, here's another crown, here's another crown. And those are the crowns we're going to cast at his feet, along with the gold and silver and precious jewels. But this is the crown of the victor. This is the crown of the one who won. And there is a, a, an album and a song that was out by uh, DeGarmo and Key about uh, probably 40 years ago. And the title of it, I've never forgotten, it was called All the Losers Win. And it was about us as Christians, losers. We couldn't relate to God. We couldn't get right with God. We couldn't climb Jacob's ladder to get to God. We had absolutely nothing that he would want out of us. All we were doing is just biding our time until we died and we went to hell forever. And yet God in his mercy has taken us and given us his victory. We win because of Jesus Christ. It's also making a reference to the fact the way the world treats us and the way they look at us. We're all just a bunch of irrelevant losers. Putting our faith in the sky God and all of this kind of stuff while they're out there really living. We're just a bunch of losers. Until you get to this day when we receive our crowns. 
And you'll see that all the losers do indeed win. And our relationships and how we worked at them and how we prayed for them and how we yielded our rights because of them and how we loved them in spite of their sin and they loved us in spite of ours. That's the Stephanos. It's that crown that is awarded to a victor in the ancient athletic games like the Greek Olympic Games. And so relationships are a reflection of Christ and the victory we will experience in heaven. So back to the title. When you surrender to Christ, when you have your relationship with Him is eternally secure, then after salvation your job is to secure the relationships with others. And because of sin, it's indeed difficult. But the good news is, that Christ supplies the power for you to have his victory in your relationship with others, whomever they may be. I mean, after all, can we sum it up like this? If he can make a sinner like you right with a God so perfect, then any relationship can be fixed in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Granted, I do know they have to work with you and that type of thing and that's not always easy but on our part we have Christ and he did it with them he can do it with you and he can do it with anybody and he can do it for his glory want a crown work on your relationships at every level for the glory of God and they will be your joy your hope and your crown of rejoicing at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, don't leave those bad relationships to sit until the trumpet sounds, because by that time, it'll be too late. Get them fixed now for the glory of God. And if you don't have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have. If you will admit your sins... And if you will trust Christ as the full payment for your sins and the only payment for your sins, and if you will follow him and confess him as Lord, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all God's people said, Father, bless us today that we can let the relationship we have with you control and dominate all of our relationships our marriages, our parenting, being involved in the society we live as citizens, as church members, everything that we do, let it flow through us. And thank you that in Jesus there is victory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.